ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. What was the last book you read? And did you know it gave you something more than just some relaxing downtime? Books themselves are as good as yoga. They're as good as having a laugh. So on one instance, it's making you smarter, but on the other instance, it's increasing your well-being. I'm Lisa Leon, and in this episode of This Working Life, we're heading to the library to borrow some books, because it turns out they can help us in our careers. More open to experience, more open to learning new things, being interested in the world around them. Reading is one of the most important things we can do to build our brains, and yet we say that we don't have time to do it, and I would say we don't have time to not do it. And if you're mostly a fiction reader, then that's probably a good thing. So fiction seems to do something in our brains that nonfiction doesn't. I'm going to help you understand what reading books, both nonfiction and fiction, can give us in our working lives and how bringing stories to the workplace can develop some key skills. And so what we've determined is that the five skills that really help people develop collective intelligence are simple but not easy. First up, though, I'd like you to meet Dr Meg Elkins. I'm a senior lecturer at the School of Economics, Finance and Marketing at RMIT, but I'm also a member of the Behavioural Business Lab, and I like to call myself a behavioural economist. Now, let's go to your research, uh, which was looking at curiosity and reading. Why did you start researching this, Meg? Oh, gosh. It happened when I watched my children on screens too much, and I got Mm. really concerned. And this is at the forefront when we didn't know the impact of what screen were doing to us. And I wanted to research basically that idea of boredom, but I couldn't find boredom as an indicator, but I could find curiosity. And I thought they were a really good link between the way we process information Mm. and really what we're trying to get to the bottom of is how we think and what helps us to think. What did you find? So this is our research. We used the um, ELSA data, which is the Longitudinal Survey of Australian Youth. And what we looked at was cognition and curiosity. And part of cognition is looking at reading. It's looking at maths. It's looking at science. And we looked at that and tried to hook back into curiosity. We, we measured curiosity at 21, but we looked at all those other attributes when they were 15. And what we found really interesting at this point was that we we knew that science was linked to curiosity, but reading was a little bit of a surprising one. And we not only looked at reading ability, we looked at how much people read, the frequency, the breadth, whether they went to the library, whether they actually read newspapers or magazines. And what we found was there was a really, really strong link with that frequency. So Meg, is it that curious people read or does reading invoke curiosity? This is a really difficult one to unpack because maybe it's just those people that are curious are more likely to read. But we wanted to go back a little bit and that's why we tested it for two points in time. So one at 15 and the curiosity at 21 because what we think is happening here with with curiosity is that you're creating synapses in your brain that open up experiences and those those connections actually do so much for our mental capacity and our skill building. Reading is not laziness. It's actually a a really uh, strong cognition that's happening in the brain that's actually making you smarter, dare I say. 
And do you think this can translate to work, that reading can give us certain skills for our jobs? I think it does have application to the workplace because what it does, one is to your ability to innovate, to think broad, to to look at a problem from different perspectives. But it also means that when you're reading, you can go deeply into into thought processes. Reading allows us to go go into that place of, of calmness and also well-being and explore new worlds. So if we're thinking about how this applies to the workplace, if you want an employee that's going to be looking at new ways of doing things, uh, an employee that can engage empathically. We know that readers actually, particularly when they're young, start to get greater levels of empathy because they relate to characters. And do you have any specific strategies that you can share for employers looking to recruit more curious employees? Well, I would say if you want to recruit more curious employees, there's a good question to ask. What did you read when you were a teenager? Because that, to us, reveals a true capacity to innovate and to see the world differently. Hi, my name is Tom Corley. I'm the author of Rich Habits and did a five-year study on the daily habits of 233 millionaires. Spent five years asking essentially 361 individuals, 144 questions each, just to find out what it was that the rich people did from the minute that they woke up in the morning to the minute they put their head on the pillow, I found actually 364 data points, but really I I consolidated them into what I call 10 rich habits. Out of all of the rich habits, the one that caught me most by surprise was the reading habit. They committed a minimum of 30 minutes a day to reading nonfiction. They were reading to learn. They were reading primarily about their career, their industry, the dream they were pursuing, anything about their company. It was specific about what they were doing to make money for the most part. Uh, They read autobiographies or biographies about successful people, particularly individuals that were in their industry or related to their industry. They read history books. 77% read two or more books a month. And when did they do that reading? That's where it come where one of the rich habits w- that I found was they wake up three hours before their actual workday began, and in that three-hour period, reading for at least thirty minutes, but oftentimes it was longer than that. The ones that read fiction, they read fiction at night, usually before they were going to bed. I always felt guilty if I was reading fiction. This is Christine Seifer. I am a professor of communication at Westminster University in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I teach classes in business and professional communication. But one of my interests is looking at the way that reading can help us become better people. So you wrote a fascinating article called The Case for Reading Fiction in the Harvard Business Review, and it did 
um, pique my interest because I am a self-professed non-fiction <laughs> book lover and I pretty much only read non-fiction books. So I was very interested but open-minded to learn about what you, your thoughts are. And you had this really beautiful piece from cognitive scientist Marianne Wolfe who argues that the quality of our reading stands as an index to the quality of our thought. Please explain uh, and go deeper on this and you can judge me if you want. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, I'll say no judgment at all because I too am a nonfiction reader. I do also read fiction, but I read a lot of nonfiction as well. So one of the things that, that really captured me about this topic is when I ran across several studies that suggested that fiction is doing something that nonfiction is not doing. And that is, fiction is asking us as readers to put ourselves in the shoes of another person. And I think, you know, one could argue that there is nonfiction that does that well. I think there are types of narrative nonfiction that do that same thing. But there's something specific about the structure of the narrative that asks us to think in different ways than nonfiction does. So it's totally okay that we love our nonfiction. There's lots of things that we're getting from nonfiction, but it does appear to be that the narrative structure is important to helping us think in in different ways that perhaps we haven't been doing to the extent that we should be. And are we talking all fiction here? What about, say, romance or dystopian horror? (laughs) Would that fall within this category? (laughs) I mean, that question comes up a lot. And and I dug into the research to see. And of course, they, they did answer that question. And it is true that the fiction that tends to work your brain out the best is literary fiction. And that's because literary fiction is asking you to think in ways that tend to be more complicated than genre fiction. And I too read genre fiction, so I'm not judging, but it is true that those books may not challenge us in ways that literary fiction ask us to think about things in in ways that are far more difficult and perhaps more outside of our sort of day-to-day understanding. Hello, I'm Sarah Lestrange. I'm a producer on The Book Show. Here are a few books that have given me pleasure recently. One of them is a workplace book. It's Australian author Catherine Collette's novel, The Helpline. It's about a hapless council worker who's working on a helpline and she's not very socially aware. And along the way, she through this story, she discovers how important it is to learn to work with people, listen to them. And as a result, she develops meaningful connections with her community. Now, we all know about procrastination and the English author Jeff Dyer really dives in deep to this subject in his book, Out of Sheer Rage, which is about the author, D.H. Lawrence, author of Lady Chatterley's Lover, And it's exploring D.H. Lawrence's approach to writing and this writing life. And Jeff Dyer is also telling us about, you know, his approach to writing and work and how he finds meaning in this work and where procrastination fits into all of that. But there are benefits to reading any kind of fiction. And one of those is just focus. 
Christine Cipher again. The ability to sit down and actually be able to read and to follow a story is something that our brains need. It's something that is useful to us at work. It's part of creativity. It's part of getting things done. And I suspect I'm not the only person who feels like my brain has been completely broken by social media. We all have damaged attention spans. I know when I talk to my students about reading, they tell me that they can only read for about three minutes before they get bored and they have... They want to go do something else or they want to look at their phone. And that's actually not uncommon. So any kind of reading is exercise for the brain. And Christine, can you explain what cognitive closure is and what's it got to do with reading? Yes. Cognitive closure is when we, you know, we're done evaluating possibilities. We're done looking at the details. We're done looking at the evidence. We're making a decision and we're moving forward. And I think it's no surprise that that's a kind of thinking that's highly valued in business or in work life in general, that we we have to get stuff done. And we often are encouraged to get stuff done quickly. Um, So there isn't a lot of opportunity to sit around and think about all of the possibilities. So we kind of develop this need for strong cognitive closure and we start practicing it everywhere. But the problem with our need for cognitive closure is we're cutting down our creativity. We're closing the door to other possibilities. Um, We're oftentimes recreating the same situation over and over again. What fiction does is it asks us to keep an open mind for the course of an entire book, which is actually a really long time when you think about it. And as you're reading the book, you're gathering all of these clues as you go along. And I don't mean just plot clues, but you're gathering all of this information about what's happening, why is it happening, what is the motivation for what people are doing, why the characters are doing this or that. And you have to keep an open mind all the way throughout the narrative in order to understand the book. So it requires you to not have cognitive closure. And I would argue that that is something that we can bring into the workplace with us. What do you think about our workplaces then having some sort of book club, maybe a workplace book club, which actually includes fiction books? Yeah. And I do think a lot of companies do have book clubs, but they tend to read business books. The idea of having companies reading fiction is actually relatively new and it is novel. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I spoke with um, an organization that works with companies and actually goes into companies and presents book groups for them. And they lead these book discussions. And the idea is specifically that they are not reading business books. They're reading books that are designed to help them develop empathy, comfort with not having cognitive closure. Um, They're focused on ways to build that brain muscle that allows you to actually sit down and focus on something for longer than two minutes, which most of us are not accustomed to. And they've had tremendous success with the organizations that they've worked for. And they've really felt that it has helped build emotional IQ or EQ in a way that other programming hasn't. They um, provide, the organization provided me with a lot of data of what they've done and they have incredible outcomes in terms of how this has opened up the door for people within businesses to think in new and different ways. That company that Christine just mentioned that brings stories to businesses is called Reflection Point, and this is the woman who runs it. 
Hello, Lisa. My name is Anne Cowell-Smith, and I am the CEO and the founder of Reflection Point. People are crunched for time more than ever. And if if it wasn't happening before the pandemic, it certainly was happening when the pandemic hit, that it was tough for people to commit to an entire book, but that a short story, which is a very powerful literary form, really gave us a lot of what we needed, and yet people could come together and in one session with one story, really unpack a topic that was meaningful or important to them. And while we still have a couple of groups that work with books for reasons that vary depending on the organization, the vast majority of people use um, short stories now to sort of unpack their ideas. What type of short stories? Can you give me some examples? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we use everything from classic short stories. In fact, the, one of the one of my favorites is a short story by Franz Kafka called Poseidon, which is super short but and was written over 100 years ago. But it really unpacks the issues of work-life balance and leadership and as if it were written yesterday. I mean, it's really incredible. Um, we also use very contemporary stories. So there are some young writers from all around the world who bring very interesting voices that you might not have read in school but who look at identity and how how we look at the world in different ways, depending on where we come from. Uh, stories of immigrants, stories of cultural difference that are really powerful. And we use science fiction. You know, it's interesting. I was just reflecting when I was preparing for our conversation that we just worked with a very big global tech firm and looked at a story that was a science fiction story that deals with algorithms. And one of the participants said, you know, these short stories are a really incredible way of unpacking the things that we worry about every day, trying to figure out what the meaning of our work is and the impact that it has on other people. And so one of them actually said, and I wrote it down, it was a safe space to talk about humanity crippling topics, humanity crippling topics, and to grow closer to your peers while, a step, while really examining topics that we deal with every day. So short stories do a wonderful job of inviting the human being, of letting us look at our challenges from oblique angles, and of engaging us in ways to have conversations that we would never have at work. And specifically, you say that your organization targets five key skills that you believe every team needs for their collective intelligence. What are the five skills? So the, the the concept of collective intelligence is brilliant, right? It's really what makes a team successful as compared to another team. And one of the things that's so interesting about collective intelligence is that it's not about collecting the smartest people in the room, but the best teams, the smartest teams are the ones that are socially sensitive to each other, that give each other balanced airtime, and that are diverse. And so what we've determined is that the five skills that really help people develop collective intelligence are simple, but not easy, right? So one is listening with humility. A second one is asking really good and curious questions. You know, the kinds of questions that are not gotcha questions, but really are curiosity, you know, where you're really curious about what somebody has to say. The third is challenging your assumptions, certainly long enough to accept that other people's realities may be different than yours. The fourth is disagreeing with respect and without retribution. You know, disagreement is a critical workplace skill, but it's the hardest thing to do as human beings because we don't like conflict. And the fifth is widening the circle of empathy or expanding our sensitivity and our willingness to understand 
the circumstances, the situations, and the plights of other people. And and how can short stories help improve these five skills? Well, because our work is a, a, a space, an intentional space that's created for reflection, that's grounded in these stories and guided by facilitators, we can model and practice these five skills. So we listen to what other people have to say. We ask questions of each other to understand their perspectives on how these stories affect them. We can challenge our assumptions because I can guarantee you that if you get 15 people in a room, you're not going to have one perspective. You're going to get 15 or more different perspectives. And people disagree. Um, And at the end of the day, it's good training and practice for helping people to be more empathetic to each other and to other points of view. It's really all about creating a safe space to practice. You know, it's funny. We would never in a million years ask a sports team to play and not practice, but we ask business teams to do that all the time. And short stories in a dedicated space are an incredible way to practice within teams, across hierarchies, anywhere that you need within an organization to learn these skills so that you can be better and more effective at working together. And so how might this come about? Does a workplace have a particular problem that it wishes to solve or how um, do the short stories get chosen? Yeah. So part of the way that the short stories get chosen is the magic, right? I think we've spent a lot of time over the years selecting the stories that we know will work. And there are some great stories out there that are wonderful for a single person to read, but aren't necessarily provocative enough for these kinds of conversations. But companies that work with us, organizations that work with us, really range the gamut, right? We've worked with manufacturers, with healthcare organizations, with tech companies, nonprofits, um, large NGOs. We've worked with all different kinds. And they will come to us and they'll say, we're working on diversity and inclusion, or we really have some teams that need to work better together, or we have cultural values and we really would like to help you know, get some help to disseminate those values and to think about what those values mean to people as they do their work every day on the ground. So these are the kinds of problems that organizations are looking to solve. We will then match the problem set with a story that will evoke a conversation that will help people to unpack that. So it's not that if somebody, if you were to say to me, Anne, I want to have a conversation about conflict resolution, give me a story that describes conflict resolution. It's not going to be like that, but we'll pick something that attends to the issues around it and forces people to get a little bit out of their comfort zone and to explore a topic related to what they're working on from a different vantage point. And have you got an example of how reading a short story or short stories helped a company work through some issues that they were facing? Yeah, absolutely. So I can, I could, I can give you a couple, but one of my favorite stories is of a shop floor team actually in a manufacturing company. And they were struggling with each other. They worked together every day, but they weren't very close to each other. So they sparred quite a bit. And their productivity was really suffering. They had a lot of their commitments were past due and they really were struggling to be as effective as they could be. And so the CEO of the company actually brought us in to work with them. And to really help them in what felt like a counterintuitive way to them to sort of build from the ground up, start to build their relationships. And over time, over a very short period of time, actually, they started to discover that they had a lot more in common than they thought. They started to really enjoy each other. They laughed a little more than they used to. And all of a sudden, their work got more efficient. 
Um, they were problem solving better and their past years went down. And so I was chatting with, um, with several members of the team to try to understand what happened. And I was talking to the youngest member who was a 25-year-old lathe operator. And I said to him, in what way did this work help you work better together? And he said, ah, I could answer, but I'd rather let John Steinbeck answer the question for you. He said, in one of the stories that we read, Steinbeck said, you can't hate a man once you know him. And he said, now that we know each other, there's not a problem that we can't solve together. Thanks to my guests, Meg Elkins, Christine Seifer, Anne Carol Smith, Tom Corley, and Sarah Lestrange. And we'll include those books and short story recommendations in the show notes. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. It's produced by Zoe Ferguson, mixed by Kerry Dell. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 